Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 3, verses 4 through 7. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we're here gathered in sort of a paradox. Here we are, sinful people, singing praise to you, the only holy God. And if we know anything from the Bible, we know that holiness and sin do not go together. But here we are, sinful though we are, freed from guilt, cleansed of sin. And so that we not need hide from you, our holy God, but we can approach you with boldness. God, your son promised, he made a declaration that he would build his church. And he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not keep it from taking over, Lord, remind us that gates are defensive. Therefore, your church is to be on the offensive. And so may we not cower and not, may we not merely have a defensive posture, but may we realize our call is to be on the offense, God. And so may we work, may we pray, may we share the gospel with the confidence that you will continue to build your church. And the main way you do that is through your church, who's entrusted with the powerful word. Continue to build your church this morning through your word, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. We, uh, we entered Genesis 3 last week. Things went south and they went south pretty quickly. We were introduced here to the enemy, the serpent, and we saw that this serpent has methods, Ephesians chapter 6. He has schemes. 2 Corinthians 2 says, we're not ignorant of his designs. And we saw that his main design, his main scheme, his main method is to question God's word. He said, did God actually say? And we saw that Eve, influenced by the enemy, minimized God's generosity and magnified God's strictness and weakened the penalty. And this week we're going to see that those schemes really do continue. We'll see the enemy deny God's judgment. We'll see him distort God's character. We'll see him divert our attention, which will lead to disastrous results. And so first, let's consider the denial of God's judgment there in verse 4. Let's read it again. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Notice, friends, the first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. And he just flat contradicts God's word. In fact, look at last week we saw, well, several weeks now, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And what did God say would happen 
if they disobeyed him there at the end, you shall surely die. The enemy says, nope. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word, that, that word no is right there. It's front loaded for emphasis. No, quote, you will not surely die. He wants to communicate in the clearest terms possible that God is wrong. And notice the descent of this dialogue. It started, maybe some people might think innocently enough with just a question. But the dialogue descends quickly. First, he questions God. Did God actually say? And then right after that, he just straight up contradicts God's word. He lies. Why? Because he's the father of lies. And he tells us, and he's been telling us ever since, there is no punishment for disobedience. You'll be just fine. Go ahead. Don't worry about it. Loosen up. YOLO. He denies judgment, and his followers have been doing the same ever since. Friends, I don't need to tell you that people hate the doctrine of God's wrath. And so they'll either avoid it, best case scenario, or they'll distort it and deny it and remake who God is. I mean, I don't know if you know this, you probably do. There's not a lot of churches that sing about God's holiness. We don't sing about it. We don't teach about God's holiness. We don't preach about God's judgments. And we remake God and we soften him and we turn him into a sky fairy, the man upstairs who is merely a God of squishy love, who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, would never dare do anything to inconvenience you. He would never judge. He wouldn't harm a fly. He's just your co-pilot. He's there if you need him. Harmless. So unbelievers will deny God's judgment. But sadly, many Christians are embarrassed by it. We no longer teach it and preach it. And, and we get it, right? It's hard. It's a hard thing to talk about. It won't win friends and influence people. It won't grow churches numerically, usually, but it will grow saints. And friends, it's taught on every, every book of the Bible, starting right here in Genesis all the way to the end of the Revelation, which is why it's so important for you all to be Bible readers. There's a lot of stuff in here that you won't hear out there. And so be a person of the word. Jesus clearly believed in the doctrine of judgment. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 10. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should fear God. He has the authority and power to judge. And listen, Satan doesn't want us believing in judgment. You won't die. You'll be just fine. Don't, don't listen to that. He, for one, he wants people there, right? Satan wants people in hell. He wants to recruit people to his team. But the other thing is, he doesn't want Christians living in light of judgment. Why? Well, because we live with intentionality, don't we? If we're not just, you know, going with the flow and we actually believe that there will be a judgment, we're going to live differently. We're not going to live just for the here and now, but for the there and then. We're going to live for the Lord. We're going to live knowing that eternity ultimately is at stake. Luther said we have two days on our calendar, this day and that day. And so if we believe in judgment, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we give. It changes the way we spend our time. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we approach evangelism. We're compelled by the love of Christ. And so we pray and we work. We pray for the conversion of the lost. And Satan doesn't want that either. So he denies judgment. Second, though, he then distorts God's character. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Notice what he does here again. He did it last time. He's trying to make God look like a miser. He's trying to make God look stingy as if God's hiding something from us, like God doesn't have our best in mind. And again, his followers, the way of the world, have been doing so ever since. They paint God as if he were a joy killer, if he were a limiter rather than who he really is, which is the giver of life, the fountain of living waters, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. The devil is a liar. And he wants us to think we're God. He wants creatures to be like God, knowing good and evil, meaning we would be the ones who would determine what is good and what is evil. He wants to make us the standard of morality. He wants us to think that we are the ones who determine what's right and what's wrong. He wants us to think that we're autonomous, that we're self-rulers, that we're self-sufficient, that we're self-determiners. He hisses in your ears all the time. You don't need God. You'll be better off without him. And last week I mentioned that one of the main pulpits that the enemy uses is the media. So we sing along with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. It's the mantra of hell. It's a dirge of death. Steve Jobs was brilliant. Talk about subduing and bringing out the latent potential of the earth's resources. He was a brilliant man. And he knew his audience, didn't he, when he decided on the logo of an apple. Now, I heard that he was just eating an apple and said, this will work. But he was a smart man. I think there was more to it when he chose an apple with a bite out of it in terms of the logo. And, of course, we know what he's named all of his products. And don't get me wrong. I'm all for his products. But what are they named? The iPhone. The iPad. The iMac. The world of the eye, the individual, these little devices that are catered for me, myself, and I, custom made. And so we get absorbed with the eye and we think we, we are our own authority. And part of the fall that affects us all is that we don't like authority. The world hates authority. We hate being told what to do. I've shared some of these ads before, but I keep adding to my list. Again, these pulpits, Nike, that says, just do it. Burger King, have it your way. And they've now changed it to just be your way. It's about a whole lot more than burgers now. Or Bacardi, I know that's rum in case, you know, it's a Baptist room here. But Bacardi said, some embrace the night because the rules of the day do not apply. How about easy spirit? Does anyone own a pair of easy spirit shoes? You might be embarrassed to put your hand up. They're shoes, right? They conform to your foot so you don't have to conform to anything. Easy spirit. Polo, living without boundaries. Merrill Lynch, and listen, Merrill Lynch is the kind of place that ought to take rules seriously. Your world should know no boundaries. Neiman Marcus, no rules here. You do you, YOLO. You only live once, which is a lie on two levels, right? Because it gets the idea that your life is all about you. You only live once, so make it all about you. But then also it makes it seem like this life is all there is. You only live once. Well, not true. We live forever, not just once. See, Satan wants us to think that we are God at the end of the day. You can be like God. Just follow my way. Don't follow his way. He's a limiter. 
And now let's zoom out. What have we seen so far? Let's zoom out and just realize how irrational this is, how irrational sin is. God had created the world and he had created people, humans, mankind, and told them to have dominion over the created order. And here we have part of that created order promising humans they'll be divine if they would just listen to him. He tempts us to want to be on the throne and in our sin nature, that's where we want to be. In our sin nature, we all want to be at the center of the universe, but it gets crowded there really quickly because you want to be there too. We want our kingdoms and we want our queendoms. We want a life that we design because we know better than him. We want sinless spouses and kids without original sin and fast food with no lines and highways with no cars and conveniences and comforts and pleasures. We want a trial-free life rather than the one that he's given me. And so he tempts us to try to take the place of God. This enemy here, he questions God's word and then he contradicts God's word and then he sets God as a, if he was a, against us. He sets God up as if he were a rival. He distorts God's character. And then he leaves the scene. After thirdly, having diverted our attention away from God and towards ourselves, Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice she sees. She saw. She's beginning to walk by sight rather than by Faith, And she sees that the fruit was good. And remember, in Genesis 1 so far, we've seen God's the one who determines what's good. Well, now she thinks she's going to determine what's good. It's good for food, she says, a delight to the eyes. It'll make one wise. I think John actually is alluding to these verses so much later in 1 John chapter 2 when he warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Eve here, she desires food and beauty and worldly wisdom. She's tempted physically, she's tempted emotionally, she's tempted intellectually, and the goal was self-fulfillment. She's enticed to turn inward, and that's, again, our tendency. That's why Augustine defines sin as incurvitasse, being turned in, curved in on the self. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. We all, like sheep, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We turn away from God and to the self. And so she takes and she eats. John Milton Put it this way in Paradise Lost. Earth felt the wound and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. She disregards God. She takes the fruit. She eats. She gives some to her husband who was with her and he eats. Notice those words, who was with her. Adam was right there the entire time. It wasn't as if he was off at work and he comes home to a forbidden fruit casserole. He's there passive as a windsock. 
abdicating his God-given responsibility to guard and protect the garden. And we're going to see next week that God's going to hold the man responsible. He's the head here. Notice what he says there in chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And after the fall, notice how God addresses Adam's sin in chapter, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Here we have a failure of leadership. And again, this is still with us today. One of the tactics of the enemy is to make men passive. Failure of leadership. They should have been having snake poppers instead of eating the forbidden fruit. Adam being led rather than leading brings sin into the world. Eve was led by the snake. Adam was led by Eve. No one was led by God. And so they fall. And fourth, the results are disastrous. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their physical death that God had promised, it wasn't immediate, but it would now come. And their eyes are open. And what do they see? Do they see what they had hoped? Are they enlightened? Are they now like God? No. Their eyes are opened, but not the way the serpent had promised. The serpent was promising benefits from disobedience to the creator, which is always a lie. Sin never makes good on its promises. Oh, that we would believe that every day. Sin always promises and it never delivers. It's always writing checks it can't cash. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief steals life. And what's the result here? Shame. Remember before they were naked and unashamed. No more. Now they seek to cover themselves. with Fig leaves. How pathetic. Now ashamed. No more in harmony with their maker. No more in harmony with one another. Next week we're going to see that again. They have life with God. It's all good. Now do we have, look at verse 8. They run from their creator. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Tragic. Intimacy with one another and intimacy with their God now, ashamed, covering up, hiding. And just dumb. The creator of the universe is coming. Quick, hide in the bushes. And friends, its consequences affect the rest of the world. Theologians call it federal headship. Adam was the representative of all mankind. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, God holding the man responsible. It's through Adam, he says, that sin enters the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. One man as the representative head of all people brings sin into the world. We call it original sin. It's historic Christian teaching. It's denied a ton today though, by the way. This is historic Christian teaching, sometimes called inherited sin. We're born guilty. Born with a corrupt nature. Listen to Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb and they go astray from birth speaking lies. G.K. Chesterton said that this doctrine of original sin, it's the only doctrine that's empirically verifiable. I mean, it's the, it's the only doctrine really of all the Christian doctrines we can look around and prove it. It's really hard to deny this doctrine. And it just spend 30 minutes on Twitter. Spend 20 minutes watching the news. In fact, I mentioned before in our house, we call the news Genesis 3. It's what we call it. Hey, let's turn on Genesis 3 real quick and see what's new. And if you've been around babies, you know that the natural bent is negative, not positive. You have to work and train and teach them to share and be respectful. Stealing and disrespect and self-centeredness, it just comes natural because of original sin. I think all five of my kids said mine before they said daddy. I mean, why can't we call them the wonderful twos instead of the terrible twos? Just about 10 minutes ago, I had to break up a potential fist fight down here. Why wasn't I having to break up a potential hug fest? <laughs> because we're born in sin. It's because of the fall. I like when non-Christians try to explain these sorts of things. There was a book that was really popular about toddlers several years ago. Let me read from a guy named Burton White. The new, it's the new first three years of life. Uh, so it was an updated edition. But it says this, talking about toddlers, that same child at 15 or 16 months of age is an altogether different person. From the time he began to crawl, he's been collecting experiences in which he's been forbidden to do A or B or to play with objects C or D. From 15 to 16 months on, as his self-awareness becomes more substantial, something in his nature we don't fully understand will lead him to deliberately try each of these forbidden activities, specifically to see what will be allowed and what won't. In other words, he will begin systematically to see what will be allowed and what won't to challenge the authority of the adult he lives with. Resistance to simple requests become very common at this time. And if there's more than one child around, this can be a low point in the parenting experience. <laughs> We're born sinful, and it doesn't take long then for us to act on our nature. Again, even with babies, right? I mean, I think ours are around seven, eight months old when they begin to get furiously angry with us as we're trying to clean up their bottoms on a changing table. But they are red-faced angry, and if they had the capacity, they would chop me in the throat. Our sinful nature leads to sinful acts. That's actually really important to understand in terms of the biblical doctrine of sin. It's, it's important to say that it's not the case that we are sinners because we sin. Biblically, we sin because we are sinners. Death in our roots leads to death in our fruits. God had said, you will surely die if you disobey me. Spiritual death happens immediately, which led to later physical death. Now we all, post-Adam, are born spiritually dead. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Friends, this is us outside of Christ, spiritually dead, walking around, the walking dead, we're zombies, physically just fine, but inwardly dry bones. That theologian Lecrae puts it, I was like a zombie till I was awakened, chasing all the Barbies, trying to get the bacon. Spiritually dead inside, spiritually self-consumed. Sinful to the core. We really are much worse than we think we are outside of Christ. Jeremiah 17, 9 puts it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The world advises us, I just trust your heart. God says, that's not going to go well. Your heart is deceitful. It will deceive you. It will lead you away. It's desperately sick because of sin. So now, spiritually dead, constantly reaching for the fig leaves that have name brands on them now. Rather than be exposed for who we are, we put up a front. We put on a mask. Fall had disastrous results. Well, how should we respond? Briefly, let me mention nine ways. They'll be brief. First one will be the longest. First, trust God's word. Have an unflinching trust in God's word. The enemy wants to undermine it. That's what we see here very clearly and we see all around us. You remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he was tempted by the enemy? You ought to read it sometime. Matthew chapter 4, the enemy comes and tempts him. You know what he does? He goes to God's word. He quotes God's word. And the first passage that he quotes is from Matthew chapter 4 that says this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' tactic on fighting temptation. Goes to the word. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 46. Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you. But this word is your very life. This is how you live, not bread alone, but by the word. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to possess. You familiar with Psalm 1? Psalm 1 is a great passage to have memorized. Blessed. Blessed. And remember, the word means happy. That's what it means. You want a life of flourishing, contentment, joy, fulfillment, happiness, blessedness? Here's how. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We don't go to the wicked. We don't go to unbelievers for our counsel. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. It's a fruitful life. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Trust in the word, delight in the word. Listen to the psalmist a little bit later in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and keeping them there is great reward. Or we could go to Psalm 119, all about, longest chapter in the Bible, all about the glory of the word. Listen to the prophet Isaiah chapter 66. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so first and foremost, tremble at the word, submit to the word, delight in the word. Don't follow the way of the enemy and doubt it. And second, tied to that, believe it. Believe it. And if you do believe in it, you'll believe in divine judgments. Because scripture's so clear about it. And even more important than believing it is number three, live in light of the judgment of God. Know that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and care about nothing in this world but divine approval. Fourth, don't believe the lie that God is a miser. Know that God is abundantly and extravagantly for you. He holds no good thing from those whom he loves. He wants your best. His way leads to life abundant here and life eternal there. Fifth, deny yourself. So what we see in these chapters is a lack of self-denial. You see Adam and Eve following their own selfish impulses and desires. So deny them. Know that it's the way of death and destruction. Six, the promise here was to attain wisdom. So seek true wisdom. Avoid godless wisdom. And how shall we attain wisdom? Proverbs tells us again and again and again. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Seventh. Ladies in particular, do not be deceived. That's what we see here in these chapters, and that's what Eve herself says in chapter 3, verse 13. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And later on in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul's teaching male leadership in the church, he says this in 1 Timothy 2, 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See, the sin was different. Adam sinned knowingly and willingly, but Eve was deceived. And so ladies, don't be deceived. Ladies, grow in biblical discernments. Eighth, men reject passivity. Don't be like your father, Adam. Lead, take initiative. God calls you to lead, love, provide, protect. Ninth, Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's taken away our sin. There's no need for shame. There's no need for hiding. There's no need for covering up. There's no need for faking. He's taken care of our sin. I read from Ephesians 2, but I stopped short. You should never stop short in Ephesians 2. Let me close our time by reading the rest. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and its clarity and its insight in these early chapters. And we see the disastrous results of our first parents. And if we have self-awareness, we see the disastrous results in our own hearts. We confess this propensity and this tendency to minimize your goodness and we confess it. We sense in us a tendency to magnify your strictness and we confess it. We confess an aversion to the hard parts of your word that we will often avoid or maybe even distort and we confess it. We confess pursuing our own desires rather than your will. We confess believing the lies of sin. May we be those who believe deep down in our bones that it never delivers, it's just empty promises. We confess believing those empty promises. We're thankful that there was another Adam who comes and reverses the curse and undoes what the first Adam did. The first Adam brings death. The second Adam brings life. The first Adam brings condemnation. The better Adam brings righteousness and justification. We rest in him. God, may you help us. Will you help us to live lives of faithfulness? May we respond to the grace of the gospel, not only in how we sing this morning, but also in our everyday lives. For the sake of King Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.